This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. And it is indeed the Beyond Zero Emissions Monday show. Welcome, and we have a jam-packed show ready for you tonight. Vivian, you've been busy at the uh, Sustainable Living Festival and Transitions Film Festivals. Yes, Jane, and I'm really happy to bring you these um, panels because one of the films especially has stayed with me since then. It was called Ice and Sky, and I hope listeners can see that film even though the film festival's over because it was absolutely about science and how hard won the uh, facts and data are that climate scientists work on over a lifetime. This one was called um, Ice and Skies about a French uh, glaciologist called Claude Laurius and he, you know, he's now an old man in the film and he just goes back over his life into the back into the 50s where he's um, doing those ice core samples with mm. the Vostok Station which is the deepest part of Antarctica and they drill down through the ice and they can get a ice core sample you know, kilometres in depth, mm. and it goes back 400,000 years. And Incredible. the panel was marvellous. We had scientists, uh, Malty Minershausen there, and he's a sort of athletic sort of person. He got up in the panel and just raced across the lecture room and, and showed how wide on a, you know, on a, some sort of imaginary graph that would be, you know, 400,000 years of climate data. Mm. And, you know, we just had to appreciate how much scientists really are frustrated by the denialists who kind of say, oh, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't that and maybe it wasn't carbon and, you know, because they have put such a lifetime of work into it. So the panellists were uh, multi and Dr Liz Connor and uh, Victoria Mackenzie McCarg and they talk, you know, about uh, the CSIRO Cup that, um, you know, slashed uh, climate research on Australia's part and how devastating that is and just how precious science is because those scientists are protecting us. Yes, sometimes I reassure myself by uh, thinking of what people have told me that the only place that's been denying uh, climate change in recent years has been Australia, that the view from Europe is quite different. Yeah, well that's right and and it's not all Australians, I mean all these CSIRO scientists and most um, educated Australians I would hope to think are actually quite aware of it, it's just um, the people in, in power. Mm. Um, but the film was just a glorious film about science. I have it shown on every you know, TV station and certainly you would love to show it to students because it just shows the integrity of scientific work, how you know you, you just don't discover these things over 
a five, you know, few months' work is what you discovered over a lifetime. Mm. And he found the carbon footprint, so these little bubbles in the ice that showed the carbon um, emitted even 400,000 years ago, mm. which proves, you know, the, the pattern of uh, the you know, carbon rising in our last couple of centuries. The other film was called Breath of Life, mm. and I didn't like it that much, but the uh, panellists uh, more or less made a really interesting discussion out of it, and they talked a lot about Indigenous knowledge and farmers and uh, the insights that you can get from some of the things that were said in the film. So the film was called Breath of Life, and the panellists in the second one, the second item, are, are Kate Orty, uh, mm. Katerina Gator. Adam Bumpus and John Wiseman. And then after that, we're going to talk to Caroline Ingbarson, who I interviewed a bit earlier. She won a prize on Australia Day for her climate leadership, and the group that she's with is called Lighter Footprint, which is what we talk about all the time on our show. You know, we're trying to reduce our carbon footprint and being conscious of it, and her group is called Lighter Footprint. Yeah, it's so a I great name. Listeners, you've got a very interesting show ahead, and, and I hope uh, I've given Jane... Uh, I've, written out a few things I thought they might, every listeners might like to do as action at the end, um, taking action regarding the CSIRO cut because that's really a terrible setback for that scientific community and for all of us. Uh, so maybe you could read that out at Absolutely. the end of the show. Yes. All right. Well, it is a jam-packed show again, Vivian. So we'll yep. start off with the Ice and Sky panel discussion. Okay. Thanks very much, Jane. Film Ice and Sky was at the Transition Film Festival, and I hope you can see it. We followed French scientist Claude Lorius on his many expeditions to Antarctica, starting in the Cold War, when Antarctica seems to have been the only place protected from superpower rivalry. We go to the Vostok station, run by Soviet scientists. There, the compacted ice goes back 400,000 years. Lorius tells us he got the idea to trace the carbon history of those years by noticing bubbles inside the ice in his whiskey. You know, they'd hacked off a piece of ice from an iceberg, I suppose, and in it was these little bubbles of carbon. We see just how hard the meticulous work of scientists is in temperatures 50 degrees below zero. But the shock of the film is to see him now in his 80s humbled by the backlash from deniers to the climate science he had devoted his life to. The panel afterwards at the NOVA were Melbourne University climate scientist, Associate Professor Melte Meinshausen, Climact's founder, Dr Liz Connor, she's also a guardian angel and appeared at the Paris Climate Conference. Also, climate rally organiser from ACF, Victoria Mackenzie McCarg. The first to speak was Malte, who refers to the whiskey bubble that Claude Lorius saw. He moves around the auditorium, drawing an imaginary graph on the screen 400,000 years ago to now, when the graph shoots up to the roof for our present time for unimaginable concentrations of CO2. Don't forget the name Claude Lorius and the film Ice and Sky. It was directed by Luc Jacquet. It is an incredibly touching movie. Um, I'm director of the Australian-German College of Climate and Energy um, here just in the University of Melbourne around the corner. 
I myself was not in Antarctica, but we have students here, young with us, uh, who were. Um, but we use these precise data from these little whiskey air bubbles every day. In fact, I had them on my screen today. And just to show you, um, if you imagine here 400,000 years back in time, that's about here, and then these bubbles reveal what is the CO2 record. So from 200 ppm down here to around 270, then the next ice age came, it went colder, then it went up again maybe to here, next ice age, the CO2 went down up four, uh, four times or so. And then by now, here the Holocene, we are about here, that corner of the, uh, of the big chart. And what we now did from 270 ppm around 1765 or so, we shot it up to around 400. And on the scale of the 400,000 years when the CO2 concentrations always stay down there, we now go up here on a straight line to 400. And by the end of the century, which is still a straight line on that, such a graph, we are then up at 500, 600. And we wouldn't have any trouble if we continue like what we do to be up at 1,000 ppm. So it's an incredible change we do, and thanks to this Vostok Ice School, we really see in the geological timescales um, how profound the change is that we put on the planet. Um, it's incredibly touching to see how much hard work is needed to get every little um, air bubble out there. And I was spending much more of my work at the other front of climate change, which is the last 10 years I was at the climate negotiations um, as the scientific advisor on the German delegation. And so we, I was in Paris as well, seeing in the outskirts and the climate guardians there um, fascinating NGO work. And inside the negotiation rooms, we were now battling to make a Paris agreement, which finally, after years and years and years of lots of words, hopefully delivers on the international level the turning point which we need to bend that curve downwards or at least stop it. And as um, was mentioned in the movie as well at one stage, the main thing is if we want to prevent temperatures to continue to rise, we have to go back to zero emissions. Mm. And that's an incredibly tough job, but Paris delivered. Article 4.1 says we go back to uh, zero emissions. Now, whether that is happening depends on the regional and local action, and um, that is now the next chapter. But the, on the international page, humanity has there opened a new chapter in the Paris Agreement, and that was incredibly successful. Nobody would have believed how successful it is, but still, it's only a tiny necessary condition that all the local action now has to follow. I just wanted to mention that um, in the media you saw over the last week the CSRO climate scientist cuts and it's ex the exact equivalent of what you saw here on screen mm -hmm. which is now put uh, into the dustbin. Hundred scientists for measurement campaigns on the street by this government and it's those who have the atmospheric measurements, those who do at the low dome in Antarctica, the ice core measurements, and they are the same giants of science are just here down the road in Aspendale, and they're all put out on the street, and it's a scandal. Oh, don't
We just got back from Paris <laughs> um, uh, prior to Christmas. We went to the COP21 talks with a crew of people and we were there to um, draw attention to climate, to embarrass our government on the world stage. And the thing is, the rationale for the Climate Guardian, and I'm an historian, I'm an, an empiricist, is that that empirical scientific thinking just wasn't breaking through. It's like, you know, you can think of that science like an icebreaker. <laughs> and it just, you know, it's very sad to hear um, the scientists say that, uh, that he felt a sense of futility about the discoveries that he made. So the point of the Climate Guardians in 50 words or less was to try and reach around that and go into the realm of affect and emotion through evoking extraordinarily powerful imagery uh, that calls up uh, understandings about guardianship, about protection, about wind creatures that are common to all belief systems around the world that mediate the, the other world and humans and portend danger and warn humans when they're not aware that they're in danger. I think spectacle has that capacity to reach around beyond the rational and get into the, that realm of affect that where there is despair and paralysis and, um, and hope and, and poignancy and fear. I think there's a lot of fear and all of those things can be very motivating but we're just seeing uh, that it, it isn't enough and it's a crisis, the window's closing so that's why I think spectacle um, can be immensely powerful, it's a lot of work um, but what, we, what happened with Paris with the angels was it just resonated with the terrorist attacks as well as this sense of you know, uh, despair and fear in a way that meant that people were, you know, clasping us and they had tears in their eyes and somehow it really had that kind of breakthrough moment and we had coverage on front pages all around the world and being Australian meant that that was very, I hope, embarrassing. So think about spectacle and if you're not sort of interested in dressing up... <laughs> Have a look at the spectacle that's, you know, talking of connectedness. We connect very much, not just through speaking over the back fence, but through social media. So think about the spectacle that's moved you and galvanised you and, and filled you and been empowering, not just caused paralysis, and share it and share it in a way that's personal. And come and dress up, that's fun too. <laughs> so one of the projections for refugees, climate refugees, is 200 million and we may be among them. This is the thing we really consider. All of those uh, cities, you know, applicate on the hems of continents are, you know, up for inundation and we may be among them. So that puts a different spin, doesn't it, on our cold-heartedness and our, you know, border paranoia around refugees now. But you're absolutely right about independent media and, uh, you know, the ABC we saw recently with the Ross Affair has, you know, a very pernicious kind of corruption that's very subtle and nasty. And it's, it is extremely important that we maintain independent media because this, the, the urgency and the crisis of climate the understanding that the window is closing, closing, closing. That when the ANU scientist Fenner says that humanity will be extinct in a few decades, he's not just talking about some abstract, he's talking about our lives 
and our children's and our grandchildren's lives and deaths. And that is not breaking through. So the so media is critically important. And the strategy of the Climate Angels is about... Uh, it's, it's a media strategy. It's about trying to create visibility and emotion around it because the science... You know, has done extraordinary things and has certainly nudged us along, but it's not creating a widespread sense of crisis. And I think because people experience crisis as paralysis, so somehow we have to do we have to do that differently. Malcolm Turnbull strutting like a rooster at COP21. He had approved the second edit uh, port terminal, which should which was I think for those of us who felt a great deal of hope about it. Uh, a, a pretty disillusioning moment because what it said in writ large was that this, for us at least, for Australia at least, is, was, was not binding. And then the, you know, the attack on the CSIRO particularly focused on climate scientists. I don't know if you want to say something about that, Malta. But there are a number of indications that suggest that following COP21, our, our government, Australia, is going to continue to be a laggard. And the window is closing. So, in a way, Australia is a focal point, you know, a sort of a, a node in the climate, in the history of the climate movement. And I think we've reached a point where a lot of us have rung our MPs, we've written submissions, we've gone to rallies, and I think there's more to do. I think it's time, and historically, there are big shifts in, uh, you know, in movements. It's time to put our bodies in the way. So the angels went to Pilliga last uh, two weeks ago. I wasn't with them. There's a, 90 angels now. <laughs> and they blockaded. And we've blockaded before. We've debolted onto the ANZ Bank because they finance, you know, Carmichael and this, that and the other. But this was the first time we actually blockaded the access of San And we'll be talking about that. It's time for us to step up and up. Get in the way. And the only way we can do that is with our bodies. You can do searches, especially go to Friends of the Earth, because the lead blockade has been um, coordinated out of that. And the Pilliga push, if you look that up, you'll see, absolutely, it's time to go. I'm Victoria Mackenzie McCard. I'm from the Australian Conservation Foundation and the president of the Climate Action Network Australia, which is a, an alliance uh, of NGOs working together for the sort of action that Malti's talking about. Um, and I share at times that feeling of futility. Uh, and I share it along with our hundreds of thousands of supporters who email us daily saying, but what do I do? And is it enough? And that frustration, I'm sure, is felt by so, so many of you. Uh, which... We feel at our darkest moments when we sit alone at home and watch movies like this or read books or uh, read the newspaper and see the actions, the latest actions or inaction of our governments on this issue. But I, uh, I also attended the negotiations uh, late last year 
uh, and arrived at those with a fair degree of scepticism around what happens on the inside of those processes and left with a heart full of hope around what those sorts of tipping points mean. That Paris was absolutely not an end point, but it absolutely was a tipping point. And that the opportunity now rests with us to take that moment and that agreement and make of it what we will. And that is our task. And it's the task that we have to commit to in terms of stepping up. And the question that's asked of us is what now? The opportunity is there for us to create the what now. Uh, this year is a pretty pivotal year in that what now for Australia. It's a federal election year. Uh, and many people see that, uh, and I've heard commentary, and again we hear it from our supporters and our members, uh, that this election is already a done deal. But it is so far from a done deal. These are moments that we create. Uh, and the issues that we vote on are the issues that we hold dear as a community. And while we hear non-stop from our supporters that the rest of the community doesn't care about climate change, polling shows us that about 80% of Australians are very concerned, not concerned, very concerned about climate change. But of those, 50% of people think that less than 50% of people are concerned about climate change. We are not talking about it with our neighbours. We are not talking about it with our colleagues. We are not acting on it in the ways that we know we can because we don't think... We, we feel that we're alone. We don't see it has that support. That support is there. That opportunity is there. It is up to us to work together, to pull ourselves out of those dark holes of watching movies at home and reading books and, and newspapers and actually create that momentum. And I feel that this year is, is a core opportunity for that. I was involved in coordinating the People's Climate March, which happened in late last year, which brought 60,000 people out onto the streets of Melbourne to stand together from all sorts of different backgrounds. And while that was a really heartening moment because it's the largest rally we've had on climate change in Australian history, what was most important was the partnerships that went into that. We had an unprecedented level of cooperation and partnership right across different sectors with different alliances and the faith sector uh, works together in a way that we've never seen on environmental issues before um, with an alliance formed from right across the interfaith network who came and walked together uh, and we saw uh, Catholic Earth Care take a really leading role within that. A lot of different Christian groups, um, the Islamic Council put out a, a, a really significant statement on climate change, Buddhists, Quakers... Uh, it was a very broad base of groups working together. But that happened across the union movement, across the health sector, across the arts, uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, but, <laughs> it's always a but, it's not enough. <laughs> and it wasn't enough. It was step one. It was a great step one, and it's laid a, fanta a fantastic foundation. But it is, again, up to all of us to make that, those next steps. And while we saw that leadership... Uh, from centralised decision-making bodies, uh, its grassroots networks and organisations and local branches, local schools, local churches, local hospitals and doctors' surgeries and maternal and child health centres that will be the place where the conversation can connect with your community, with your families and heart and soul and where we can actually build that momentum. And if you are interested in speaking with your politicians, then take your friends and family. Don't be doing it alone. Have that alone. Have that conversation and take um, the other women from your mum's group or the other people from your church network and do it together because it is together as a community that we'll be able to 
create these shifts. I mean, it's an interesting... The hope versus despair is a really significant challenge. And um, I'm learning about hope that it is so much more than the sentiment it exudes on the page. And there is so much more to that word um, that comes through, particularly in resilience as a core facet of hope and what it is. Um, but it's also not a sentiment, I believe, that can exist on its own as held by an individual either. I think it's something that we hold collectively and we create and own collectively. Um, but to your point about how to then share and communicate that with others, we do, we have found through years of environmental NGO communications that despair uh, might create a breakthrough moment, but uh, it doesn't create the longevity um, that's needed for the changes that, that are required. And it's very disempowering. Um, and something so big and so amorphous as climate change, it's out there, is also incredibly disempowering. How can I possibly be responsible for that? And what could my action possibly mean in that enormous challenge? So I'll just prepare the lunches and go to work and pay the bills and get on with it. Um, finding a way that can make that issue connect for people is incredibly important. And you are the best judge of that for your friends and family. I don't know them and I don't share my life with them and so I, I don't know. Um, but you do. You know what you connect with them about. You know what they care about. Uh, and um, you know how to talk to them. And so taking on and owning that with our own friends and families and communities is probably the most important thing. Um, so I think wherever you go with it, you'll probably do it right. Oh, don't dig a deep head in the ground. So that was the panel at the Transition Film Festival on a film called Ice and Sky. We heard Professor Malte Meinshausen, Dr Liz Connor and Victoria mackenzie McCarg. The last word goes to Professor Kate Orty. She said, Humans cope. In adversity, we find our best selves. We'll find the language, but we've got to act. If you're interested in what you've heard, look up The Guardian Angels, look up Pilliger Push, look up Friends of the Earth. There are campaigns on, and if you want to put your bodies on the line or join up or help in some way, those are the places to start. The only... The only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people. And you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and I know you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them. And you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. 
You're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Jane and we're still at the Transitions Film Festival here in Melbourne with a panel a panel discussing the film Breath of Life. The guests are Kate Orty, Katerina Geiter, Adam Bumpus and John Wiseman speaking about the film Breath of Life. Maybe you caught it. Uh, Kate was the Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability in Victoria. Katerina Gator um, is the founding director of the organisation Climate for Change, which is a really exciting new project um, focusing on uh, climate change communication and advocacy. Um, and we're also delighted that Katerina's recently joined us on the advisory board of the Sustainability Institute at Melbourne University. And Adam Bumpus um, is a, a lecturer in environment and development in the Department of Geography at the University of Melbourne. And as you'll hear, uh, Adam's got a particular interest in the question of how can the creative, the disruptive parts of business and innovation uh, really make a difference to the issues we're talking about. Kate, I'd like to, to start with you. I mean, Kate, this is a fairly kind of confronting film, but there's lots of talk about collapse and catastrophe and so on. But I'm interested in what are, the, what are the starting points for you? What are the examples when people say to you, well, how do I turn fear into action rather than despair? What, yeah. what, what do you talk about? Aboriginal people, and I acknowledge the women who've mentored me, have always shown great resourcefulness and resilience They've always started where they were and they've refused to give up hope. And Indigenous people in our country show us just exactly where that can get you. They have survived. They even survived Australia Day. The reality for me out of this movie is that it goes back to local. It doesn't go back necessarily to just being an Indigenous person because that's the great way we can think about ourselves in nature. It's about every one of us. And one of the things that I do at the moment is I'm on a thing to do with the City of Melbourne. They've got an ambassador's program for their new report. And I'd be urging every one of you who's thinking what you can do to go home tonight and if your computer is turned on in the next couple of days, get onto the ideas section of the City of Melbourne's website, participate and share your ideas. Even if you only share an idea about stopping plastics, you can support people who are saying get plastic bags out of the City of Melbourne. You can support people whose idea is up there saying stop boiling water. So you can start small, you can start where you are, you can act local and you can contribute in that way. My view is that as long as we are breathing, and that's one of the great stories out of this film, as long as we are breathing, we must participate. And it doesn't matter where we participate or how small our achievements might be. Participate. Katerina, same question for you. Um, this question of turning fear into action. And I'm particularly keen for you to tell us about the, the climate of change group that you've founded. Tell us about that and how that contributes to this kind of change. You know, we are driven by meaning and we are... By far, by far the majority of the population is, um, is driven by what we call intrinsic values, values that are so not, not money, status, power, but making the world a better place, community, justice, equality. Um, so we, we, we start from that and we try and... Um, I think the film made the point that um, our dominant consumer culture plays on those negative things. But 
there, we, we start from the question, well, how can we bring out those other aspects of human beings so that we can rise to the challenge of climate change? And what we know is that consumer culture and mass culture is very good at bringing out those extrinsic values, but it's through conversations with people that we know and trust that we get into deeper things, the things that give us meaning and the things that sustain us and the things that really we find con- we, we, we develop conviction for. So those external, extrinsic things, we might sort of go along with superficially, but they don't drive us in any deep way. Um, and when we find the things that give us meaning, it's through conversations with people that we know and trust. Um, so our model is very much based on creating spaces for those conversations. But um, we also know that we need those conversations en masse. We need lots and lots and lots of people to be having those conversations to be able to make the change that we need. Um, And so we've actually stolen the Tupperware party model. Um, We ask hosts to hold gatherings in um, in their homes with their friends and family. Um, we facilitate that conversation. We try and get people to a point where they really do want to act and they can find something meaningful to do. Um, and then, as well as supporting them to do that action, we also ask them to host their own gathering in their home uh, so we can grow exponentially. And based on our calculations of meeting the targets that we've set for ourselves, and so far we're meeting, uh, we should be able to reach between 500,000 and a million people face-to-face to have these conversations. Um, And if we're targeting, our goal is to target what we call early adopters, so people who are, um, you know, who really do get climate change and really understand the need to act and to help them support, help them talk to the next group of people we need. And it's really that, that... it's a small group of people in our society that we really need to shift, and they're not the deniers. They're the people who are sympathetic to climate change being real and needing to act on it but they're not really deeply committed to it and so if we can just shift them to that deeper commitment then we can get the social climate that we need for pressure on our leaders and all the people who can really um, enact the bigger changes that we need to solve climate change. So Katarina, this is, I mean, this is starting local, but it's got a big game-changing aim, doesn't it? If I come along to one of these conversations, um, how will, what sort of issues will you raise with me? What, how, how will the conversation go? They're, they're not so much about facts. Mm. We've done the facts to death and we know that they actually don't really move people. It's more... Um, So the very first thing is that when we ask a host to invite their friends, we ask them to invite people who are sympathetic to the idea that climate change is real, who are open to doing something. We're not trying to convince deniers, so we don't invite them in in the room. It's just going to distract the conversation. We start with a little video that we've put together. It's pretty rough, but it seems to do the job. It talks about um, how climate change is really going to affect the things that we care about but also what the solution, the sort of high-level solutions are that are already happening around the world that can give us hope. Um, and then we really try and help people to um, engage emotionally and personally with the issue. So we really ask people, you know, what does this mean for the things that you care about? How is that going to affect them? We ask them, do you feel like you're doing enough? What would be enough? How much do you want to give to this? Um, so we really try and get people to reflect very personally on what this issue means for them. When we get them to do that, that's sort of the first half of the gathering, and then the second half is sort of a, a structured sort of we think through, well, if, if we do want to do something, how can we make the biggest difference? And, we, and we, we are really trying to get people to understand that we all can do lots of things in our own lives, but if we don't have 
you know, politicians and industry and business making massive changes, then everything we do won't be enough. And if whilst we must do those things as well, we we need to put pressure on those entities. And I, I think part of the gatherings is trying to rekindle a sense of ourselves as citizens. There's a lot of research and certainly what we're finding when we talk to people is we're very good at thinking about ourselves as individuals and as consumers, even in our communities. But We've forgotten that we are citizens in a democracy and that we can make a difference that way as well, and we need to remember that. Mm. Adam, um, I mean, there's a lot of criticism, critique in that film of you know, corporate capitalism and, you know, mm. and consumerism, but I'm interested in the work you've done with the, the disruptive, the creative end of, of business, of entrepreneurs. Mm. What contribution do you think disruptive business can make and can you give us some examples yeah i mean this is a i mean the film talks about the system that we have in the moment and the capitalist system that we have and how that we need a systemic change and in many ways that is where we need to be that's where we need to go for that is the that is the goal because we can't solve the the problem we have with the same thinking that created it but um what we've seen in some of the business work, especially in places like California and, and in places in Australia as well, there's, there are businesses that are trying to disrupt the current incumbent large fossil fuel companies. And they're doing it through smart IT. They're doing it through no, new solar systems. They're doing it through a way of engaging people so that they can take action themselves. For example, instead of charging a lot of money to get solar put up on the roof in the first place, they're leasing it to people over a certain period of time. So there's low barriers for people to uptake this new technology. Now, that's not going to change the world overnight. And one of the things I think that the film talked about, which was important, was this idea of complexity, that we can engineer the finance so we can engineer the technology to be increasingly more complex to try and solve the problem. But in some ways, it doesn't really work because we, become, we get to a point where we, none of us really understand what we're actually doing. And I think that kind of speaks back to this idea of happiness as well that they covered in the film that you know, people are in, in, the, in the Western world are searching for this elusive happiness and a lot of people are actually going for less complexity in order to do that and less complexity by being more sustainable but also working for uh, less being on the phone and more being involved in community and involved in uh, things that are actually fulfilling and I think that speaks to what Katarina was talking about in terms of what it is that drives us to, to, to do things differently and that isn't necessarily getting 400 likes on Facebook. Um, it's not to say that Facebook and technology isn't a good way of promoting some of this stuff, but it's not the thing that will, so will solve this. One of the other things that we've been doing is a bit of work uh, with uh, some communications partners here and over in places like the World Bank, and, and how do we get narratives out in films like this? And one of the things that you both mentioned is, is that more information doesn't help. Mm. More information on the problem doesn't help us cognitively make decisions that are better. Uh, what does help is us connecting emotionally to the issues that sit behind it. So that was covered there, and I think, and we were talking about this actually on a film shoot this morning uh, around the role of Aboriginal knowledge in understanding what the landscape was before a European invasion. That there was management of the land in a sustainable way with sustainable populations. It can happen. The trouble is, we start to put on put on at this level of complexity and level of information and dogma that doesn't really get us where we need to go. So there's an important part about where we do narratives in film and narratives in communication. That's about how do we connect to it emotionally? What is a story that really makes sense there and we're not seeing that a lot of the time actually you know they want meaning in their lives they want something else they feel like we're on a path to destruction that it, there's an emptiness that comes with just sort of working and shopping um, that a lot of people are really talking about and comes up time and time again in our gatherings um, and I think it's also really interesting that 
a lot of the evidence around values shows that if we start talking to those so a lot of the time we have thought we had to meet people where they are and we had to talk about the economy and we had to talk if we wanted people to accept our environmental messages and other messages we always had to frame it in terms of well it will be good for the economy and it will help with all of those sort of things and actually what the evidence is showing is that that doesn't convince people it just reinforces this idea that the economy is the most important thing and what we actually need to do is start having the courage to have those conversations about what's important. It's not the economy. The economy is a means to an ends. And if it is destroying the very ends that we're trying to achieve, then it's not working. And we want to talk about the things that matter. And people respond to those things. Um, and so we really need to reclaim the conversation um, and the public narrative away from the economy to the things that really matter and the things that we really care about. Um, and the evidence shows if we do that, people will actually listen and respond. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the Strathbogie Voices project and yeah, yeah, what you've been doing? As a small town, I live in Euroa, uh, we decided about uh, 18 months ago to have an environmental series and to think about democracy in our town around issues associated with local government because we were pretty unhappy. We sat down on a December... On, in December 2014 and decided to populate an environmental series. We started with what we thought would be one discussion and suddenly we found ourselves with 15 people who we thought would come and be speakers in our town, catching the train from Melbourne, coming down from Wodonga, coming over from Mansfield or Tatura or Shep. And by the time we finished, we had about 30 really fantastic speakers. And then what was happening was our community was saying, fantastic, we're getting all these great speakers from Melbourne and everywhere else. But as they became part of the conversation in our small town themselves, this is our local people, they started to say, I've got something to contribute to this conversation. And by the time we finished, we were actually having people come along to things like a conversation about climate change and superannuation. And they might be a farmer who didn't care about superannuation, but they actually wanted to know what people were saying about those sorts of things. So we moved from biodiversity, which was close to some people's hearts, to superannuation, to climate change, to thinking about art and culture. And at the end of the day we actually said let's make a record of this and I think it's clever for us to celebrate our achievements and we made a record of it so we brought brought in some young filmmakers we had a bit of a bequest all of this was done completely with no resources from anybody and they made some videos of what we were doing and we said at the early stages we'll take this video to Paris now that was a bit of a piss take of ourselves but that's what we did and even in doing something as seemingly trivial as being a person who takes the video to Paris people will buoyed by it. So my point I suppose is that we all have these extraordinary networks, we just have to be a bit bold in trying to make them come together which is what you're doing and what you're doing. The majority of people in a room or a society can think something to be true but they, at the same time they also think that everybody else in the room doesn't think that to be true and so they don't say what they believe to be true because they think they're the only one. And then you get this strange scenario where even though the majority of the people don't support something or support something, they go along with what they're not happy with because they think they're the the only ones. Um, And we see that happening all the time. And we know that's the case on climate change. Polling shows that, you know, we that only 7% of the population is really deniers, yet most people think it's about 50%. Um, And the the, the simple solution to that phenomenon is if you believe it, speak up, be the first ones to put up your hand and, and say how you feel and be prepared to be embarrassed. Um, and what you'll find is that actually if it is 
what a lot of people are thinking, they'll start to come along and you shift the other way. So, you know, those Mm -hmm. exactly examples of that, you know, just starting conversations in your local communities, creating those spaces to do it, um, will give those people who need permission from someone else that permission to speak up. I just think that as long as we take the view that nobody else is thinking like us, we will have reinforced that view and it's exactly right. And that was a panel discussion about the film Breath of Life that played recently at the Transitions Film Festival. Finally tonight, Vivian did an interview with Carolyn Ingvarsson. Carolyn is from the Lighter Footprints Group. Check this out. Carolyn Ingvarsson became the Burundarak Citizen of the Year and she represents a group called Lighter Footprints. I know that she's totally aware of the climate emergency which each of us must face responsibly. So how are you feeling? Oh, well, pretty chuffed. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very nice experience, I must say. Yeah, well, I think your group is a very good one. I I attended one talk there when Cam Walker gave you a talk and I was impressed at the kind of large group it was, how you had such a nice supper, very friendly and mm-hmm. pleasant. It was pleasant to be there. And, but I was also impressed at what a, um, uh, one of the members got up and read the letters to the editor that had been published by members of your group. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is really good. You're really celebrating each other's achievement and efforts and whatever, at whatever level we can get this message out about lighter footprints you seem to be um, encouraging every one of them and I'd like to know what are the ingredients of a resilient group like this? I would say fundamentally it's that we actually like each other and that's that's fostered by the uh, social occasion being a regular one and as you suggested it has um, food and drink and we structure things so that people come early knowing that that's part of the arrangement and we have time to just catch up personally um, which helps amazingly and it helps to introduce new people to feel like they're included and part of the group Uh, well you know at least they know know who's who and someone's taken the trouble to say hello to them we've um, kept it I think the structure has emerged over time. We've been going about 10 years now, so we've learned quite a lot about how people enjoy coming together. We thought initially we'd manage a lot of stuff on the email, but it's not what people want. They want to meet, they want to talk, they want to feel like they can ask questions and have their own issues addressed. So we've structured it so that we have uh, always have some input uh, from usually someone extremely interesting as you suggested like Cam Walker who's Mm. always got something really challenging and interesting to say on an issue of current um, interest Mm. Uh, after that there are questions and we always then break for another about 15-20 minutes for interaction with whoever it was that was there uh, speaking plus each other and then reconvene for the business of the, of the night. Um, it makes the meetings a little bit long, so we start at 7 and we're really out the door before 10, mm. but people stay, large numbers come for the first part and, uh, and the chat and, and something to eat, and, and significant numbers stay on for the harder, 
more more interactive part of the evening. Yes. Well, I've had a psychologist on the radio saying that, you know, what we need in this climate emergency, we need resilience and communities need to trust each other and be able to work together because mm-hmm. there's a lot of collaborative work that needs to be done to kind of all be on the same page because at the moment we seem to be a rather fractured society with... Uh, vested interests pulling one way and a lot of people getting very worried and trying to pull the other way but seeming weak. And so I think joining together in a group like that is excellent. Yeah, I think that is the value of, of having our community regularly meeting so that although I know many other groups prefer to have specific occasions and and meet less regularly mm. for us it's been absolutely pivotal to know that we can meet it's often a very different group as well it's not the same 40 people yeah. or 50 people who come but it is a rolling number mm. and everybody then knows that they're they're kind of part of a group and they can, can they can say when they're feeling like you know, giving it all away, or yes. you know, there is a place to go with to to share the ups and downs that we all have. Well, I want to uh, now talk to you about consumerism. Uh, you know, getting a lighter footprint there. Mm-hmm. Our, our consumption, oh, the way I frame it, you know, it seems like a positive thing to be a consumer. It's patriotic, mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. It's keeping people in jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and also, as an individual, we think, well, how can one little seat on a plane to London really hurt anyone? You know, mm. I'm just taking this one seat. That's, you know, if I didn't take it, someone else would take it. And, and so we, we just allow ourselves to get away with a lot more consumption than we really need. And at the same time, called cognitive dissonance, I think there's another part of our brain that says, look, our good life here is destroying life elsewhere. We know about the extinction of species already, but we, now we all know about climate change. I'd like to know what you think are the blocks for people who want to make a lighter footprint? Probably perceptions of friends and neighbours about what what they're doing. People generally like to be doing acceptable things that are recognised as um, having some status and giving them a, a proper role. And uh, as you say, there are symbols of progress which are all wrong for the planet. Mm. Um, I think one of the hopes we have... Um, in Burundara was uh, raised at the Australia Day the other day Um, it's that we're getting people who come from places where they've had nothing and they can teach us so much about what matters and how to share how to belong in, in groups that value listening and caring and stuff second Mm. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn from a lot of the people who are around us mm. coming into our society. Mm. It's a tricky one, though, and uh, you know you, you you can get caught out on your your own best intentions it, by sort of showing off how good you are. Yes, and that's right. And you don't want to be seen to be lecturing people exactly. or blaming people. You know, mm. um, I don't fly, but then I don't like flying. So I sort of say to people, oh, I don't fly, but it sounds like I'm being smarmy. So, but it's not that. It's this bigger perception. I think it's because we don't, we're very tentative about talking about it. We need to be a bit more... We've got a lot of hope in our young people who are um, building sustainable approaches and asking questions about, well, I'm not going to own a car. Mm. I'm running my life differently. I'm not going to even consider it as part of my lifestyle. Mm. I'm not going to eat 
that kind of food. I'm not going to use those sorts of mm-hmm. products. And you can feel that there is a wave coming up from underneath. Yeah. And it's not, it's not everybody, though. It, it's our special young people who've got the same fight within their own cohort. So it's, uh, yeah, it's tricky. All right. Well, look at the political level. You know, this is the, I, I spend that on the individual level because I just feel that at the moment we spend our time pointing at coal mines and pointing at you know gas wells and pointing at the government mm. should do something. But there's a lot more that we can do. I think in the way of lighter footprint friends, without being we don't be so com- we shouldn't be so complacent. Mm. But I'd like you to tell me now about local government. Have you had luck with your local council? I mean, you've become yeah. the citizen of the year um, there, so what, what's the council's well, attitude to climate you know, change? We're hopeful that this is actually a reflection of the way in which the council is perceiving the issues that we stand for. Um, I mean, you just don't make someone the citizen of the year unless you think what they have to say has some mm. resonance um, with your citizens. So I'm hopeful that it is, in fact, supportive of the issue, um, and I will use it in that in that way. Yes, well, but yeah, uh, there are the certainly many, many things. And I, yeah. one of the things I'd like to raise, and did raise at the time, is the business about how we live in communities, and mostly about building simple and efficient housings and new precincts that we're devising in all of our council regions. They're now trying to increase the number of people they can contain. Energy efficient places close to public transport. We need to think positively about development, not negatively. So you're thinking like more public housing? I am indeed. Um, And designed in ways that are are energy efficient and where people want to live. Well, as we warm up to the next election, what are your ideas about making sure that climate action is central and that people are aware of the responsibility embodied in their vote? I guess you, you, you talk to your neighbours about what matters to them and, and, and raise it. So you do it at a local level, your, your friends. and uh, you, You've got to keep talking about the thing, not just not talking about it. Mm. So that's the first thing. Um, so that becomes part of conversation, which is relatively normal, and and you indicate what's concerning you and what concerns you about the local um, candidates and whether they're standing for these issues or not. We then run forums, which which highlight, which force people to put their the money where their mouth is on the mm. on the table and, and make those big public forums. But we also put in local newspapers um, statements from eminent persons who live in the community and who have views about how important action on climate change is Mm. and what that looks like. And we get signatures from those people, people who, who matter in our community and whose views are considered to be valuable. And those we publish in a local paper around the time of the election. I think that's very good because uh, I read a poll from the Australia Institute recently and they polled four conservative electorates, including Tony Abbott's electorate, and they found that 77% of the people there were wanting a transition to renewable energy and a stop to new coal mines. So this, you know, I felt, goodness, if the government people would take this in and make this part of their platform, we'd be home and hose. Political class, you know, the people who, who do represent us, they come and they smile and they're 
you know, seemingly very receptive, but then they go away with policies which are a lot less than uh, we need. For example, at, at the Paris conference, the Australian government seemed to be saying, yes, 1.5 degrees, yes, we agree to that, but then came home and approved the Adani mine and, uh, you know, didn't didn't stop fossil fuel subsidies. So there's a way of seeming to be saying yes, but at home really saying no here. There's a real, real reality hits. And I think that those people are kind of an elite and they're insulated from the actual impact of their actions. And I wonder how we can cut through that insulation. Yes, I think we all do. Um, What I think is that the setting of a target is extraordinarily important for all sorts of reasons and that immediate political action um, uh, should be judged over the longer term and... There were many, many reasons why that approval was made, and I think their hands were tied on it. As far as I can understand, it's it's not uh, to be taken as an example that they're they're um, not prepared to support actions that will reach the target. Mm. Um, I think on on that particular um, mm. occasion, there were other reasons for it. But I think we have to continue to book time with our local politicians and keep talking. Talking, that is, asking them, you know, put that position and say, mm-hmm. can you explain it to us so that we understand it? What else is there? How are you... What are the factors that are that are uh, impacting on you? Who else should we be talking to? Mm-hmm. What do you listen to? Um, is there information that would help you behind closed doors? Mm-hmm. Can we do this for you um whose opinions do you value anyway to have a conversation with your local politician is incredibly important Mm. is is that what people in your group do yes it is meet them and try and influence them we do continue and we are fortunate that we have Mm. um good well we have politicians who are prepared to to sit and give us the time of day that's great and we do have good discussions with them Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. I've enjoyed talking to you. And just for the listeners, that was Carolyn Ingverson, who represents the Lighter Footprints Movement, and she became Burundara Citizen of the Year yesterday. And that brings the Beyond Zero Emissions show to a close tonight. We've heard uh, two panel discussions from the Transitions Film Festival, which has played out in the last couple of weeks in Melbourne. The first was a panel discussion on ice and sky film. The second was a panel discussion on breath of life. So Vivian and I urge you uh, on uh, picking up that note from a couple of speakers tonight to be citizens of this democracy, to take action and to take it to the politicians and to big uh, big business interests without which, uh, without their buy-in, we uh, are unlikely to affect climate change uh, in too much degree. So perhaps for this week you could take action by checking out the Climate Council's report called Flying Blind Navigating Climate Change Without the CSIRO. Pick it up, send it on to your MP or even better to the PM and make a clear request to reverse the cuts to CSIRO's climate science. Next up, save Albert Park.